0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Doughty. And today we're going to be talking about an expedition with a very unusual packing list. Um, some of the items on the Champagne, French Novels. else truffles silk pajamas yeah they sound pretty nice we like them a lot and we think that if we were going to go on a safari or a a trip we might bring similar items but we'd also make sure that our trip was in cars and that it was also on paved roads not pack horses in the mud
1: unlike the champagne safari which was technically known as the Bideau Canadian Subarctic Expedition. So for all of you people who have been clamoring for Canadian history, here you go. And we'd mentioned Charles Bideau in our podcast about the Nazi king, because he owned the Chateau de Condé, where the Duke and Duchess of Windsor were married. But His life is far more interesting than just that one small episode, and the safari is part of that. So, to talk a little bit about his life before safari, he was born in Paris in either 1886 or 1887 and dropped out of school fairly young when he started working with
0: a pimp. Yeah, he helped the pimp find girls for business, and uh, the guy helped him get, you know, wear flashy clothes and learn to fight and all that uh, until the pimp was shot. It's hard out there where their working relationship ended. And that's when he
1: moved to the United States. He was about 19 or 20. All he had with him was a dollar in his pocket. And so he started working as a manual laborer and then as a dishwasher until he took up entrepreneurship. And he was really fantastic at it, apparently. He sold all sorts of strange inventions, like a toothpaste that removed ink stains. And then he went on to become an efficiency expert, and he worked with some huge companies like DuPont,
0: yeah, he invents the Bidot system. And employers and managers love this thing. Employees and unions hate it because basically it establishes a Bidot unit, which is how much work you can do in a minute. And if you complete 60 Bidot units in an hour, well, then good job. You've done your job Adequately. And you can keep it. So we're really hoping our boss won't pick up on that because I don't even know no. what a Badeau unit Bode- would be a podcast. How many podcasts do we do in a Badeau unit, Katie?
1: I have no idea. <laughs> but Badeau made millions from this venture. So he was really living the American dream. He'd shown up as an immigrant with a dollar in his pocket, and now he was a millionaire hanging out with people like the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. And working with big companies, too. Oh, yeah. But the money and the famous friends weren't enough for Badeau, and he needed adventure. In 1929, he was the first man to cross the Libyan desert. He'd sailed the South Pacific, you know, hunted big game, did all those thrilling adrenaline rush
0: types of activities. But then he had a big idea. He's going to go through the Rockies and the Stikine Mountains to the Pacific from Edmonton, Alberta. So this is a... A big trip all the way to Telegraph Creek, British Columbia. And we've gotten different numbers for just
1: how long that was, depending on
0: what we're reading,
1: Um, anywhere from 2,400 kilometers to 1,800. So if you've got a more solid number, feel free to send it to us. But this trail hadn't been attempted since the Scottish explorer Alexander Mackenzie did it in 1793. Much of it had no roads at all and was unmapped. But Badeau said, "'It's fun to do things others call impossible.'"
0: So, Badeau brings along his wife, Fern, and his mistress, the Italian-Swiss Countess Bellona Chiesa. The wife and the mistress. Hello. Sounds like an awkward trip already. But He, he also had with him
1: a bunch of other people, a Swiss skiing instructor, some cowboys, a dental student, a bush pilot, geologist
0: guides, a surveyor, his pet fox terrier, a gamekeeper, and a mechanic. And lots of cameramen, including Floyd Crosby, who eventually goes on to be the cinematographer for *High Noon* and win an Oscar for it. They also brought along
1: with them five Citron half tracks. There were these all-terrain vehicles that had wheels in front but caterpillar tracks in back, kind of like a tank. They also brought along a hundred pack horses and fifteen tons of supplies, some of which Sarah and I had already mentioned: the champagne, candied fruits, French novels, truffles. Silk
0: pajamas, flatware, uh, one pack horse that just carries Mrs. Bedeau Fern uh, her shoes, fur parkas, Devonshire cream, and chicken livers. Which I think that's the one item I might leave off this list.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I like my my livers. But we were saying this reminded us of, of the Burke and Will's expedition podcast and all the bizarre things they brought them things with that, that as well. Things that are
0: unnecessary for your rustic trek across the wilderness. But on July 6,
1: 1934, they set off for this big trip with all of their stuff. They've got a champagne breakfast and a big send-off in Edmonton in the rain, which also starts off with two limousines
0: escorting them. So this is not just any safari. No. Well, they obviously ditched the limos pretty quickly because the roads that they're traveling on are made of something that the cowboys call gumbo. It's more like clay than mud, and it sticks to everything. It's impossible to get through, and it's kind of like a bog. They actually call it muskeg. And these wonderful Citrons, who are supposed to be you know, so fabulous
1: and all-terrain so all-terrain, <laughs> don't actually do so great on the terrain. They have to haul them through a swamp. They're so slow. They're gas guzzlers. So things
0: aren't proceeding quite as blithely as you might wish. And it just rains and rains and rains. You should just imagine this rain for the rest of the podcast. That's how I feel in Georgia right
1: now, Sarah, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. They do make it through... 800 kilometers of mud roads, though. So, you know, despite their difficulties, they make it through. But that's the point when they hit the wilderness and there are no
0: roads anymore. There are no maps. They're on their own. This is Montney, British Columbia, and it's the last outpost from this depression relief cut trail. So it's the edge of the wilderness.
1: And Badeau turns out
0: to be tough to deal
1: with, perhaps not surprising considering who he is, but he likes you know, everything done his way. He likes it done right then, even if that's not the way it needs to go. And when he was called on it, he said, this is the sort of thing you must be prepared to put up with when you pack a millionaire through the wilderness, which,
0: you know, I guess he had a point. I'm not going to lie, that kind of reminds me of Gilligan's Island. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking, too. Um, Badeau fires his radio operator, too, which makes his team mad, understandably, because without the radio, the surveyor can't get a Greenwich time signal and do his job. Bedeau's comeback for that was that they never
1: heard anything from the radio other than the fact that John Dillinger had been shot. So Great. there you go. Yeah, reasoning. <laughs> <laughs> and again, the Citrons are even worse in the mountains. They're always getting stuck. They're slow. They're eating all that fuel. They decide, you know what? We're going to pull the plug. On this whole thing, it hasn't worked out for us, but we're not going to do it just any old way. We're go out with a bang. Oh, if absolutely! You will. So they get Crosby to start recording, and they send one of these vehicles down the river on a raft. And the idea is that it would bang into this cliff that had been rigged with dynamite and then explode. And you would have this spectacular, you
0: know, cinematic explosion. explosion.
1: Yeah, it didn't really work out. The dynamite did not explode. And instead it just, just kept on down going the- down that
0: river where a rancher found it and drove it for the next 30 years. So not a bad vehicle. And two others were pushed off cliffs and two were abandoned. One ends up in a Saskatchewan museum. You can apparently... See it today if you wanna, wanna get a sense for the Champagne Safari. I do want to.
1: Uh, Bidot told the New York Times that he'd lost the vehicles in a freak accident, which yeah. I mean, it was a freakish incident. It would have been pretty freakish, <laughs> <if> <laughs> but it not had a freak gone accident. Right. So now they've just got their horses, and around August fourth, their hundred horses cross the Arctic Halfway River, and then they all come down with hoof rot, which is a really, really painful thing for a horse to go through and apparently from what i've read if i'm wrong please let me know once like a whole herd of horses comes down with it you're pretty much screwed if, yeah, if there are just a few, a few it, right you it can spreads. treat them with antibiotics but once it spreads through the whole thing you're done well for. of course they
0: wouldn't have had antibiotics with them no they did have truffles <laughs> but antibiotics no um, by september 8th they crossed the Quadrata River and toast with champagne, because what do you do when you've abandoned your vehicles and your horses are sick? But it, this is a, blown a little bit out of proportion. They have a case of champagne, which is 12 bottles, and actually one is sadly broken. But still, just something about toasting with champagne at this dire point.
1: When it just became one of those moments by which the entire expedition was known when people were trying to paint him as being ridiculous. It was like, well, look what they did with the champagne. I don't know if that's fair or not. I guess we'll see because in mid September, they start shooting their horses. Um, they're exhausted, they're hungry. They've started running out of horse feed. And of course they all have hoof rot and they start shooting two or three horses a day, which takes its toll on everyone in the expedition. It was very difficult
0: Yeah, and it also gets the wolves' attention, and so packs start
1: following them. And they don't have any fresh meat for themselves. Things aren't going well, and they finally get to the point where they decide they're not going to make it. They're going to turn around, go back home, even though they're several hundred kilometers from where they wanted to be. So they hire canoes and head back. The funny thing is that when Badeau returned, he tried to paint the expedition as a success, but the public's reaction was more along the lines of, Okay, so you spent $250,000 for what? Like, what did we get out of this? Just it was just an eco trip, yeah. right? And after the trip, he got into some some sketchy business. For one thing, he arranged for Hitler and the Duke of Windsor to meet, which we talk about in our other podcast.
0: Yeah, and he did business with some pretty shady characters. And um, yeah, any any Nazi connection during this time is rather disturbing. He worked a lot with
1: France's Vichy government. He did one weird experiment in Roquefort where instead of money, he suggested they all use a unit called the Bex. There Which would be was no just commerce defined in his head what that unit stood <laughs> I know, okay, for. I keep going back to the Badeau units. <laughs> there was no commerce, and he thought of it, I guess, as, as capitalism within communism. He called it the theory of equivalism, and some have said it was a reaction to. To his Bedeau system, it really bothered him how many people thought his system was cruel to workers. Yeah. And this was his, his answer to that. And A more utopian idea.
0: Yeah. I mean, especially from somebody who's coming from such humble beginnings, you can mm-hmm. imagine uh, how it would bother him that he was hated by the working man. Exactly. Some of the shady business dealings we were talking about, too, he may have given financial information to the Nazis about the companies he worked for. So, I mean, remember these companies that we we're talking about, DuPont and, and GE, and GE like I mean, huge American companies. Um, and... The Nazi connection goes even further. There's a bust of him shown with those of Hitler and Goring. Not a company you want to keep, Mr. Badeau. He also got in trouble
1: for something we have yet to verify. Sarah and I keep finding different accounts. Some sort of trans-Saharan pipeline, either for, we found different things, edible peanut oil, um actual oil or perhaps a railroad but either way it was to be able to transport things to German occupied lands and Kind of hoping it's the edible peanut oil. Because that would be more interesting, yes. But he was seen in North Africa drinking brandy with a German officer,
0: and on December 5th, 1944, he was arrested as a collaborator. And because he's an American citizen, he goes on trial for treason in Miami. And while he's awaiting trial, he kills himself with phenobarbital on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1945. But This is where it gets a little crazy again, because he
1: left a very cryptic note saying that he couldn't tell the truth about what happened because of powerful people and said that he was a good American and that he loved his wife. And some think that maybe he was murdered because he wouldn't talk about the wartime activities of certain industrialists or because he couldn't talk about the wartime activities of these very powerful people.
0: Yeah. So we have a little history mystery there. Uh, He's ultimately buried in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, one other sort of strange little factoid about this is some people say that the Citron half-tracks were being tested for military use. So if you know anything about this kind of stuff,
1: please send us an email at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. From what Sarah and I were reading, it sounded like this was a particularly compelling period of Canadian history or, you know, just one of those fun stories that, that people know. So if you know anything more about it than we do, drop us a line.
0: Years after this whole thing went down, film footage from all of these filmmakers who are along on the trip was actually found and a documentary was made. So Katie and I know, I know we're interested in, in checking this out. Oh yeah. Seeing well, that, we'll this have failed, failed explosion.
1: <laughs> and it turned out the whole thing wasn't awash. Some of the information from this trip was used to make the Alaska Highway. So it did indeed have a purpose besides the fantastic title of the Champagne Safari.
0: But I think that's about it. And I guess it's time for a listener mail now. <laughs>
1: And I got a couple of corrections on our Haitian Revolution podcast about Toussaint Louverture. And the first one is from Doug, who might be my favorite because he starts off with small correction, pun intended. And we do love a pun. He says, during Napoleon's autopsy, it was concluded that he was five feet, two inches. These measurements were, however, given in French feet, a measure that was slightly larger than a standard foot. Napoleon, in current terms, was about Five feet six. And we got another comment on the blog from David Markham, who is president of the International Napoleonic Society, who said the same thing. So we're sorry for saying that Napoleon was short. I would, however, like to say that he is shorter than the both of us. Yep. Still so. short to add. <laughs> That's our story and we're sticking to it. So if you'd like to learn more about the Champagne Safari and all sorts of interesting adventure stories, come to our website at www.howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.